Kale Clark here. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Check out Charity Mobile and prayerfully consider making them your wireless carrier. Mention offer code Relevant Radio and get a free phone. Don't delay. CharityMobile.com. That's CharityMobile.com. Welcome back to the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. This is Kale Clark, and this is our series on Romans. Can you handle the truth? St. Paul's letter to the Romans, just the, the pinnacle, really, of New Testament theology. And where we left off is in chapter 7. And uh, this is actually a, a great turning point in, in, in Paul's argument. I think you'll really enjoy this. Let's, let's read the first few verses together. We'll sit back and talk about it for a moment. So this is Romans chapter 7, verse 1. All right. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during his life. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brethren, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Okay, so let's, let's stop there at the end of verse 6 of Romans chapter 7. So let's just give a little bit of background here. At, at this point, and what we looked at in the last episode was that how we share in the death and also in the resurrection of Christ as well through our own baptism, and especially baptism by immersion gives us a visual image of that. When someone is plunged into the waters of baptism, it's like a death and burial, and then they're brought up again into the life of the resurrection. So that's what we looked at last time. And now in chapter 7, He's going to talk about, this is an incredible analogy by St. Paul. This, this is just why he was one of the most brilliant minds of all time. He's going to talk about how through this death that we underwent in baptism, we also died to the law. Now, this is a big deal in the early church. This was really, really important. What is the factor? How much does the law of the old covenant matter in the new covenant time? And if you look at the Acts of the Apostles, this was really the chief problem in the early church because as, as Gentiles were being evangelized, as Gentiles were coming into the church and being baptized, the question became, do they need to be, certainly talking about the adult males here, or just the males in general, do they need, do they need to be circumcised before they can join the community that worships the risen Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and indeed the Savior of the whole world. In other words, do they have to obey the ceremonial works of the old law 
before they can become members of God's covenant community. This is different from whether or not people have to obey the Ten Commandments. We've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again. The Ten Commandments are binding on all generations at all times and all places, certainly in the New Covenant as well. The Catechism has a huge section on life in Christ based on the Ten Commandments. So what we're talking about here is the 613 precepts of the law of the Old Covenant that the rabbis would talk about. They continue to discuss to this present day the precepts of the Old Law. Now, this is, again, a separate deal from the Ten Commandments. So what's Paul's main point here? And Brent Petre, Dr. Brent Petre, gives a a great argument uh, on this, a great explanation of this in his uh, Sin and Salvation series. Um, but he, he talks about how Paul's argument is simply this. The law is only binding until death. And, and he uses a, a great a, an example, an analogy of this, that marriage is only binding until death. And that was true in the Old Covenant. It's also true in the church, when it comes to sacramental marriage, it's only binding until one of the spouses dies. And so this is a, this is a great argument to bring up because every single person who has been baptized, remember, when, we, when we're baptized, we died in a certain sense. And we're still living, of course, but uh, those who have not been baptized, I guess you could say, are the living dead or the walking dead, if you will, like zombies, because they don't have. Uh, the likeness of God that is his divine life. They're created in his image. They have a rational soul, but they don't have the life of God. We get that when we're baptized. Every person comes into the world missing something, the life of God, the grace of God. This is what original sin is all about. But we get it when we're baptized. We get the life of God when we're drenched in the waters of baptism. But also, so you could say those who are unbaptized are the walking dead and and we are the dead walking if we're baptized in Christ because we're dead to sin, but we're alive to Christ. We're alive in Christ. And so on the basis of this, this idea that we, we die to this old man, as Paul calls it elsewhere, the old person, the sinful nature, we die to that in baptism. We can come alive to Christ. And because we've died to the old self, we are now set free from obedience to the works of the law, just as surely as when a spouse passes away, you are then set free from the obligation to marriage. The marriage dies when one of the spouses dies, if that makes any sense. And uh, and so this is a, the duality that Paul sets up. And as Petrie says, this is exactly what he's going to be talking about in the whole rest of the letter to the Romans. And in fact, not just in Romans too, but in all of Paul's letters. If you really want to understand St. Paul, you've got to understand this whole theme. So this is a duality that he sets up. And it's basically this. And Petrie says, kind of imagine two uh, circles, if you will, or two spheres, as it were. One of them you can call the old creation. And the other one, imagine just a circle in your mind, is the new creation. And the question becomes, how do you get from one sphere of the old creation to the second sphere of the new creation? How do you get from one mode of being, from one existence to the other? Well, the answer is baptism. The answer is really baptism. 
So you got to get from the old creation, which St. Paul calls the flesh. The flesh. Whenever, whenever you hear that term, and I'll, we'll kind of flesh this out, pun intended, uh, in the next couple of minutes. But when he, whenever St. Paul mentions the flesh, he's talking about this. He's talking about the old creation. Whenever St. Paul talks about the spirit, or the life of the spirit, or the life in the spirit, he's talking about the new creation. Now, when, when Paul talks about the flesh, a lot of people misunderstand him greatly. And what they think is going on here, when, he, when St. Paul talks about the flesh, they think he's talking about uh, really a great heresy in the church that, that started really at the very beginning. And it's, it's really sticky. It has stuck with the church for 20 centuries. It's, it's a, a heresy, a false teaching that's almost impossible to get rid of. And it's called Gnostic dualism. And Gnostic is spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Uh, Gnostics. Who are the Gnostics? Well, the Gnostic uh, cult, if you will. Uh, Gnostic means gnosis or knowledge in Greek. And basically people who believed, there were all these groups, and there wasn't just one group. There are many, many groups throughout church history who were Gnostics. And they essentially said this, we have this gnosis, we have this secret knowledge, and we have the true way to salvation. We've got the inside scoop, but you can only get it you can only discover what this is if you join our little group. If you leave the Catholic Church and join our group, because we've got the secret truth about Jesus. We've got the insider knowledge that you do so desperately need. So this is so incredibly wrong and, and drastically opposed to the Catholic faith that Jesus left his church. Because the word Catholic means universal. It's for all people. It's for all times. It's for all places. And it's open to everybody. It's not a secret club like all of these Gnostic cults that sprung up uh, over the centuries. And there's still groups like that today that say, well, we have the truth about Jesus. You got to get out of the Catholic Church and join us because we, we alone know. Um, and think about um, dangerous cults like the Branch Davidians, fronted by David Koresh and, and what happened in, in Waco, Texas, and the tragedy that unfolded there. So many died. And there have been so many cults like that throughout the modern age as well as in ancient times. But essentially what the Gnostics believed was this. They believed that the flesh was bad in terms of the body, the, the human flesh and blood and bone that make up our bodies. They thought that the, the body was bad and only the spirit was good. And it makes me think of the, the church lady skit on Saturday Night Live from years ago with Dana Carvey. Remember that? The church lady would say, hey, the flesh is bad, bad, but only the spirit is good. Uh, that, that is not at all what St. Paul taught. So this is a huge misunderstanding that, that affects a lot of people today who do think, and they think that this is the teaching of the church, and it's wrong. It's not true. They think that the material world is evil, not just their bodies. They think, they think that the human body is evil. They think that the material world itself is evil. And only what is truly spiritual is good. That is not the case. Okay, whenever the Bible talks about spirituality or the spirit, that does not mean non-physical. Okay, a spiritual life does not mean a non-physical life. Now, certainly when we talk about the Holy Spirit of God, Certainly when we talk about God the Father, we're talking about pure spirit here, of course. But the word spiritual does not mean non-physical. So this is a really, really important uh, distinction to make. St. Paul is not saying, when he uses the term flesh, 
it's probably better translated as the sinful nature. And some English Bible translations actually render it that way. They say, whenever it's, he says flesh, they actually turn it into sinful nature because that's what he, what he really means. He means this, this unredeemed human nature. The, the uh, part of, when we come into the world subject to, uh, we, we're carrying this original sin with us like a genetic defect. Any, any, we're just sort of prone to sin. This is the concupiscence that remains even after baptism. That's what he's talking about here. So, unfortunately, this concept has infected Christian theology, both inside and outside of the Catholic Church. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. This is our Letter to the Romans series. It's called, Can You Handle the Truth? And I'm your host, Cale Clark. So, the reality is simply this. The reality is the body is not evil. Don't forget, in Genesis, God created the world. He created man and woman. He created our physical bodies and all that go with it, including marriage and human sexuality within marriage between a man and a woman. And he said, it is very good. It is very good. So the body is not evil, as Petrie says, but it is fallen. Our appetites, for example, our bodily desires. And a lot of the desires that God puts within us are good <laughs> to eat. We got heat to stay alive. Um, the desire for, for our spouse within marriage, within an illicit marriage, illicit marriage, not an illicit marriage, in case you don't misunderstand me here. But our desires have been, they become disordered because of sin. And, and that's really all sin is, right? It's disordered goods because the devil can't create anything. He can only cre- take the good things God has created and get people to twist them, misuse them, use them in the wrong time, the wrong way with the wrong person, that sort of thing. Not in accord with God's law. And the other thing, too, about our bodies, and this is something St. Paul is going to talk about in the next little section, is they're not always under our control. We, we really want our bodies to be under the, the absolute control of our souls or spirits. And that is not the case right now. And it's not just the case for our physical bodies as well. It's, it's the case for the material world. Again, the material world is not evil, but... It is, in fact, also fallen as well, because sin, when it came into the world, infected the whole creation. I think about in the book of Genesis, when righteous Abel was killed by his brother Cain. It was the first murder in human history. What does God say? Your brother's blood, he says to Cain, is crying out to me from the ground. It's crying out for vengeance. So when that blood of innocent Abel soaked into the ground, it's almost like a picture of how sin infected the creation itself. And think about natural disasters. The, the world is sometimes an inhospitable place. And, and, and scripture talks about the creation itself groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. St. Paul talks about that. And this is why there's a need for a new heaven and a new earth too. There's going to be a transformation uh, of this earth as well. So, We've always got to keep this in, in mind. And so when St. Paul talks about sin and he talks about the law, the law of Moses, don't forget that the law of Moses was given to a people who were living under the dominion of sin and death. It was given in a sense to manage life and reality in that world. We're talking about these 613 precepts of uh, of the law. Now, in the New Covenant time, it's different. 
because God has given us the gift of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and the ability to live eternal life, which starts here on planet Earth, and it just extends out into eternity. And that's that's kind of how the Gospel of John puts it, but we're not studying John right now, we're studying Romans. So this is um this is what's really, really important here. And this whole idea of of using marriage as an analogy that Paul uses, this idea that, hey, once your spouse dies, your obligation to them is over. You know, if, if law, if we were kind of married to the law in the old covenant, when we died with Christ in baptism and were raised to new life, guess what? We're married now to somebody else as the people of God. Jesus is the new divine bridegroom. And he is the one who brings us into this new relationship of love with God, this new relationship of, of grace. This is what's so crucial to understand here. All right, let's keep moving here in Romans. If you want to just pick up with me in verse 7. We're going to just read the next few verses here in Romans chapter 7. Paul then writes this. He says, What shall we then say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet it ha- if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived. And I died. The very commandment which promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Okay, let's stop here. This is actually one of the the most uh, densely packed uh, little sections here in Romans. And it's when people read this, they kind of go, huh? So, first of all, he, 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 he assumes and he proclaims once again the goodness of the law. Is the law sin? Absolutely not. The law is good. The law shows us how things should be in God's world, in God's universe, especially the, the, the Ten Commandments. But when he says, hey, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't have known what sin was. I wouldn't have known what the law is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, finding opportunity, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. It's kind of like this. If I were to tell you, hey, don't think about a pink elephant. Of course, now you can't think of anything but a pink elephant. I'm sorry to do this to you. I hope that image goes away after a while. But but here's the deal. St. Paul is saying, as soon as that commandment came into play, don't covet. It's like, man, now I'm coveting. Like, just because I know this now. I know this is kind of tough to get, but we'll, we'll explain a little bit more about this. We'll keep going in the next episode of Romans and, and try not to think about uh, pink elephants uh, in the meantime. But hey, this is exciting. We've got to stop here. We've run out of time, but we're, we've got a great question for you right now in our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag segment. So let's do that. Let's open up the mailbag together. Okay, as we open up the mailbag today, I want to remind you that you can email me, Kale Clark at the Faith Explained, and you can send me your question at this email address. It's faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com faith at relevantradio.com and you can also try uh, messaging me on twitter uh, the x app at kale clark is my handle c-a-l-e clark with an e 
And we got an email question today from Patricia. And Patricia writes, Kale, your ministry is a blessing. Thank, thank you very much, Patricia. And I thank you for listening to the programs and, and for, for writing. Uh, you're a blessing. All of our listeners are a great blessing to us here. Um, and she, she had a little prayer request. And Patricia, I, I've taken note of that. I will pray for that. Um, she wanted to keep that private. But here's her question. She says, what is your interpretation, Kale, of Matthew chapter 7, verse 6? Uh, this is a great verse, and, and this is a great question. I'm so glad you asked this. I love this question. So here, here's Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Okay, so th that is... Um, a passage that I'm sure a lot of you guys out there listening have, have had questions about. What's this all about? Don't throw what's holy to dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine. At the end of the day, there are people out there in our lives that simply do not want to be corrected. They don't want to be put on the path to righteousness. They don't, they're not looking for the truth. Maybe they're looking simply for an argument. Um, maybe they're even actually people that can be dangerous to you. <laughs> um, so Jesus is essentially uh, giving some advice here on this. Now, in the Old Testament, in terms of what's holy, do not give what is holy to dogs. All right, let's talk about what, before we talk about the dogs, let's talk about what's holy. Um, in the Torah, the books of Moses, it talks about meats and, and, and leaven that, that are sacrificed to God. Those are called holy things. And in the New Covenant time, this is interesting, the, the Didache, this is a famous book. It didn't make it into the Bible, but it could well have. It did not make it into the New Testament. But there's a short book called the Didache, which simply means the teaching of the 12 apostles. That's what Didache means, teaching in Greek. And in the Didache, it says that what is holy is actually the Eucharist. So this idea, don't give the Eucharist to the dogs. You know, don't get, and who are the dogs? Unbelievers, essentially. Um, now, that might sound harsh. That might sound harsh. And we'll, we'll get into this in just a second. Does God love these people? Absolutely. But it's very similar to um, in the Gospels, when Jesus is telling his disciples, his, his apostles, to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. And when he sends out the 70, he sends out even a greater group of people. He says, you need to leave the towns that are rejecting your message. Okay, you've given them the message. Shake the dust off of your sandals against them. And because it's going to be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon and for the city of Sodom than, than it will be for these towns that reject the gospel when it comes to the final judgment. He says also in Matthew chapter 10, verse 13, if the house is worthy... Let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So what's going on here? This is, this is by the way, this is not original to Jesus. This, this is a thinking that was all throughout the Jewish tradition. Um, the, the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the uh, Qumran community in the caves of the Dead Sea, here's what it says. This is, this is a, a good analogy because he talks about why it's not necessarily a good idea to share insider truth with outsiders. It says, quote, the instructor must not reprove the men of the pit. Now, who, who do you think the men of the pit are? They're the, the guys on the, they're the other guys, you know, like people that are not part of our community. Don't reprove them. Do not argue with them about proper biblical understanding. 
Now, for reference's sake, that's from a document called 1QS. It was found in Cave 1, uh, 1Q. Uh, that's what that means. Anyways, this idea of dogs, uh, some people think Jesus is referring to Gentiles do not give what is holy to the dogs. Um, it's plausible. I think of the Syrophoenician woman and his response to her. Um, here's the problem with that, that sometimes in the Old Covenant, even uh, Jews refer to other Jews as dogs that when they're having disagreements with them and things like that. Plus, in Matthew's Gospel, don't forget, the end of Matthew's Gospel, it's the Great Commission. Go to all nations, all Gentiles with the Gospel. So I, I don't think that's what it means. Don't give the truths about God to the Gentiles. That's not what it means at all. So here's an example from the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verse 11. This may be more along the lines of what Jesus had in mind here. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who reverts to his folly. Maybe talking about heretics here, false teachers, or people who, who knew the truth and then rejected it. Uh, Ignatius, and they're kind of unrepentant about it. It's one thing if they repent. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 7, verse 1. This is, again, not biblical, but um, this guy knew the apostles very well. Ignatius says, They are mad dogs that bite by stealth. You must be on your guard against them, for their bite is hard to heal. So I think this is the danger of playing around with people who are hostile to the faith. Now, what about throw your pearls before swine. It's very much, it's a, it's another way of saying the same thing. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Although, maybe a slight difference here. What's the ideal of pearls? Okay, there's, the, of course, a pearl necklace, but also think about pearls of wisdom. Pearls of wisdom. Pearl, pearls were, Jesus uh, tells a little parable about the pearl of great price. And, and um, in Job chapter 28, verse 18, even, even in the Old Testament, it says the price of wisdom is above pearls. So think about pearls of wisdom, pearls on a string. These are wise sayings. This is all throughout uh, ancient history. Um, Sextus, a uh, Greco-Roman source, l listen to what he says. When you purposely throw your best possessions in the mud, then, being pure, ask for something from God. He also says, Say nothing about God to the godless. Say nothing about God to the godless. So essentially what this means, when, when Jesus says, if you throw your pearls to swine, they'll trample them underfoot. These are people who are outright hostile towards the message. They're, they don't really want the wisdom of God. This is totally different from a pagan who is open to the message, who simply does not know, maybe they've never been taught, and if they were taught the truth about God, they'd respond positively to it. These are people who are, who are not looking for God. They're, they're actually outright hostile, and uh, they might fiercely reject the message, the messenger, and they can turn and maul you. Again, the book of Proverbs, very similar to what Jesus is saying here. In Proverbs 23, 9, it says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words, end of quote. One of the reasons why Jesus spoke in parables was that those who were really looking for God would be able to discern the message, and those whose hearts were hardened would not get it, and sometimes were, were if Jesus were to be super clear about it, they'd be outright hostile towards the, the message. So those who have ears to hear, let them hear. That, that's really what's going on here. So this calls for wisdom, and I, I would say that when you're dealing with people uh, who are not Catholic, um, you've got to really kind of assess, are they open to the truth, or are these people who actually are just outright hostile? God loves them too, 
but um, you got to pick your spot sometimes and, and be wise about this, um, as Jesus encourages us to do. All right, if you have a question for me on the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, you can send it in. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com. And I will catch you later today on the Kale Clark Show, live at 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio. And, of course, in the next episode, too, of The Faith Explained. God bless you.